Hey everybody, I'm Mike McDonald. My buddy Jesse Stratton loves some of the cheesiest movies ever made. He spent years telling me about them all, so now I'm finally watching these movies for the very first time. This is our podcast where we break those movies down together. This is the Celluloid Dumpster Fire. Hey everybody, today we're talking about the 1986 cult classic sci-fi horror, The Invaders from Mars. This movie is like a a real, like a stew pot of a movie. There's a lot going on in it. It really is. This is a remake of a 1953 film of the same name based on the screenplay by Richard Blake that was based on an original story by John Tucker Battle who wrote for a bunch of Westerns, including Bonanza, Have Gun, Will Travel, and Bat Masterson. Uh, seems like quite a departure for him <laughs> to go from uh, hardcore cowboy movies to, to a sci-fi thriller. Mm. But he's got a cowboy in there in the form of the general. <laughs> it was like Movie back run. then, it was like, like the only two like kind of genres you had was cowboys or sci-fi like where they'd be like right. a killer bug movie or little green men that was like the only yeah. two genres really exactly you were either writing for um buck rogers or you were writing for Hopalong cassidy yeah <laughs> movies an hour and 38 minutes rated pg and it has a 38 percent rating on rotten tomatoes which i mm-hmm. think is just about right although there are some there are some aspects of this movie that really shine, that are really special. Yeah. The uh, movie was made on a budget of $7 million. It made $4.9 million at the box office. It's kind of surprising, actually. But it wasn't a horrible, horrible film. It was just not a great film. Yeah, it's just, that's, it's curse. It's like it's an okay movie. Like, it's a right. canon film. So, like, canon, you know... It's not too good. It's not too bad. It's like, eh. Yeah, exactly. Mostly filmed on location and the mostly filmed on location in the Eagle Rock neighborhood of Los Angeles, including Eagle Rock Elementary School. Reviews for this movie range anywhere from Nina Darnton of the New York Times, who said that director Toby Hooper, quote, knows how to construct a horror film so it builds to a screaming pitch, end quote, to a review in Variety magazine, which called it an embarrassing combination of kitsch and boredom. (laughs) (laughs) I disagree. I wasn't bored through most of this movie. There were some slow parts, but otherwise I was enjoying this movie. You know, this is like one of those films my dad made me watch when I was like really, really young, you know, like you know, five or six. Right. And uh, because of this, I got into a book series called like my third grade teacher is an alien. And it's, it's pretty much this movie, but like, you know, like for a book for kids and like, it was like a long series of books and stuff. And it got me into reading and shit. So yeah, yeah, weird kind of like kitty sci-fi stuff. I liked when growing up. Yeah, and, and this movie plays out like a young adult story as well. So yeah, it's real stylized, and like he did that on purpose. Like Toby Hooper, he's a genius. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre and all that. In fact, uh, he, this movie got made because he was coming off of making 
life force for canon films, which is like uh, sexy space vampires, you know? So, oh, nice. Yeah, they just got through making that movie, and then they're like, oh, well, let's make another one. And he's like, so this kind of counterbalanced the adult themes in, in Life Force. They're like, you know, it's like a, a goofy kid, you know, and sci fi shenanigans, nightmare right. schedules, and stuff. As you said, directed by Toby Hooper, who made Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, Poltergeist, and the music video for Billy Idol's hit song, Dancing With Myself. Oh, man, he made all kinds of shit. Toby Hooper, He made man. a lot of stuff. Yeah, uh, I love Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. That's probably my favorite one he did. And, uh, you know, Poltergeist, everybody loved that, man. It's a great Halloween right. movie. Just put it on, you know, hand out candy. Yep was written by Dan O'Bannon and Don Jacoby. Uh, Dan O'Bannon worked on Alien, Dark Star, Total Recall, and The Return of the Living Dead. Dan Jacoby wrote probably one of my favorite vampire movies of all time, John Carpenter's Vampires. <laughs> time to slay some vampires, Padre. You up for it? I guess so. Just the two of us. No, mister. He was always with us. Fair enough, Padre. Let me ask you a question. When you were stabbing that vampire in there, yeah, did you get a little wood? Mahogany. Excuse me? Ebony. What? Teak. Are you possessed by demons? Major chubby. Language, by the way, language. Yeah. He also worked on Death Wish 3 and Arachnophobia. Both great movies. I love Dan O'Banion. I love, like, Return of the Living Dead. It's, like, one of my favorite movies. That thing is, like, iconic as hell. Right. I wish he, like, you know, Dan O'Banion is, like, a really underrated writer, I think. These are some great shit. The creature designs were by Stan Winston, the legendary Stan Winston. Stan the man Winston. Responsible for Planet of the Apes, Jurassic Park, Terminator 1, 2, and 3. Aliens, Friday the 13th, Parts 2 and 3. Edward Scissorhands, Batman Returns, Galaxy Quest, and Constantine. The guy's a legend. I... He has his own school where people study to be like him, you know, I mean, don't get better yeah, than that. He's, he's amazing. Stan Winston and Dan O'Bannon were both working on this film and Aliens simultaneously. And there are a lot of elements, especially in the Martian ship and in some of the writing and creature effects that kind of bleed over from Aliens into this movie. Yeah. Some of the Martian uh, ship settings are definitely H.R. Giger inspired. Oh, yeah. Movie stars Karen Black as Linda Magnuson. She's got over 200 film and TV credits from 1960 to present, including Easy Rider, Five Easy Pieces, Capricorn One. Don't hear about that one much anymore. No. ER, Nashville, House of a Thousand Corpses, and Repo Chick. Also, one of the greatest uh, comedy horror movies of all time called uh, Children of the Night. A uh, very underrated movie, very kind of like a sleeper movie. Not a lot of people know about it, but uh, her portrayal as a, a the succubus, like a lady vampire, is just fucking, I don't know, man. That thing stands out. I really suggest that movie. Children of the Night came out like 91 or something. It's great. Nice. Hunter Carson is David Gardner. He only has an, a handful of acting credits, but this guy, this is the guy who played Bud Bundy in the pilot for Married with Children. Really? 
Yes. Man, that's weird. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty common. To, you know, when they shoot a pilot, they'll hire actors to shoot the pilot. And then sometimes they'll change them up if it gets picked up. And a lot of times they'll use the same cast, but a lot, but sometimes they'll they'll change it up a bit. I cannot imagine somebody other than David Faustino playing Bud Bundy, but Hunter Carson played him in the pilot, and I don't think I ever saw it. I bet it's on YouTube. I bet it is. I have to go look for that. Who, which one's Hunter Carson? Who, which character does he play? He plays the kid, David Gardner. Oh, that's, uh, what's her name's kid? Who's the kid? Ch- the chick we were just talking about. Uh, Karen Black? Yeah, that's her kid. That's her son. Oh, okay. What's that's you know like their chemistry on the screen is awesome and shit. But yeah, that, right. Yeah, he and that really, makes he a lot more part. sense now. Yeah, he he plays this part really well. You know, being a wild kid with a wild imagination in the eighties. He's he really a really good him. actor for a young kid too. But then now it makes a lot more sense when you figure out that by the time this movie was made, his mom had been working as an actor for shoot over twenty years, and his dad. Yeah. Timothy Bottoms is George Gardner, known for The Paper Chase, The Last Picture Show, East of Eden, and the original Land of the Lost TV series. Timothy Bottoms. Yeah. <laughs> he said Timothy. But- Lorraine Newman is Ellen Gardner, known for being one of the original cast members on Saturday Night Live. She also appeared in The Coneheads, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Problem Child 2, Jingle All the Way. And she has voice credits in Beavis and Butthead, Metalocalypse, Fairly Odd Parents, SpongeBob SquarePants, and American Dad. Yeah, she does a ton of voice work. Uh, yeah. I'm always hearing her voice. It literally like, sticks out, too. Yeah. She was Dan Aykroyd and Jane Curtin's daughter in all the Conehead sketches on Saturday Night Live. And that comes into this film, too. Yeah, a little Easter egg. James Karen as General Climate Wilson, General Mad Dog Wilson. He's a character actor from 1948 until he died in 2018 at the age of 94. Appeared in something almost every single year for 70 years. Yeah. Uh, mainstay in television and uh, B-movie history. Yeah, uh, this guy and Clue Gallagher are like you know two of my favorite, like old school like type of B movie stars. Yeah, definitely. He appeared in Car Fifty Four, Where Are You, All My Children, The Waltons, Dallas, Mash, Return of the Living Dead Two, Charles in Charge, The Larry Sanders Show, Beverly Hills Nine Hundred Two One Zero, and Seinfeld. Yeah, he was in both Return of the Living Dead, it's like one and two. And, nice. Uh, him and the younger guy, that the one that played Tommy Jarvis in that one Jason movie, they uh, they yeah. both appear in both of them. Now we have Louise Fletcher as Mrs. McKelt. She's one of my favorite villains. Oh yeah, I hate this won lady. The, she won the Academy Award, Golden Globe, and BAFTA Award for the role of Nurse Ratchet in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. She won Best Guest Actress from the Online Film and Television Association three times for playing Kai Wynn in Star Trek Deep Space Nine and once for playing Peg Gallagher, Frank Gallagher's mom in the Showtime series Shameless. She just, you know, she's a sweet lady. Yeah. On screen, 
she is such a damn ball buster. She's awesome at it too. I know. I wanted like I really wanted to like send her hate mail in Deep Space Nine. You know, like every episode <laughs> she's in, I'm like, well, there goes my day. Uh, yeah, I mean, she was just a a, a self serving, backstabbing, emotionless diplomat, and she played it to the hilt, and it was wonderful. Yeah. Um, she also appeared in The Exorcist 2, Firestarter, The Karen Carpenter Story, Picket Fences, VR5, ER, and Heroes. Nurse Ratchet. They got that right. And they tried to reboot that character as a series recently with Sarah Paulson playing Nurse Ratchet. I read about that. Is that any good? I don't, I don't know. I don't think it got picked up for a second season. Movie opens with credits. Long, long credits. Also, like a really cheesy, like Superman kind of ripoff feel, like the opening credits to Superman. You know? Yeah, or or like the Captain Planet title sequence with the, with the words just zooming down in a swoop with lots of swooshy sounds too. Yeah, incredibly cheap. Incredibly cheap. Definitely geared at kids. Yeah. David Gardner and his dad are lying on benches in their driveway watching a meteor shower. Ellen Gardner comes out to spoil the fun and tell David it's time to go to bed in David's room. He's got a sweet little telescope along with a bunch of toys and posters related to space. They start gathering stuff up off his off of his bed. His dad picks up a magazine off the bed and sits in the chair to start reading that. This was Fantasine magazine, and this specific uh, issue that he's reading has a big write-up about the original Invaders from Mars movie. As he turns out the light, David's dad remembers that he got him a special penny for his coin collection. There's, there's nothing this kid doesn't have. This kid is spoiled rotten. Oh, yeah. He's got a coin collection. He's got a telescope. He's got spaceship models and... And all Parents kinds of stuff. Each other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a healthy home life. I wish I had a telescope. <laughs> There's a thunderstorm later that night and it wakes David up. He goes to the window and sees a light show and spotlights playing along the ground. And then a, a spaceship shaped like a giant potato comes <laughs> down out of the sky and lands behind a hill. I love the the lights that they used because they just went and got like uh, some rigging from like a uh, that you would use like in a rock show. Yeah. So it, it looks like Boston is landing in this kid's backyard. <laughs> it does. It totally looks like that. If Boston was inside a giant potato. Yeah. I mean, all their album covers are like that guitar spaceship. It kind of looks like a potato. Yeah. Well, the window slams shut and David runs screaming through the house to wake up his parents. And by the parent, by the time his parents get to the room, there's nothing to see. And even the rain has stopped. And they're, they believe he just had a bad dream. He's a little kid. What do you expect? He had a nightmare. Next morning, David comes down to find his mom writing crib notes on her hand for her bookkeeping class. George Gardner enters the, the house looking and acting very confused. He only has one slipper on. He said he lost the other one when he went over the hill to investigate the lights David said he saw the night before. Tells David there was nothing over there and that David just had a bad dream. 
And that's when David sees what appears to be a puncture wound on the back of his dad's neck. Ellen leaves for her class and David watches as George pours a cup of coffee, then very calmly picks up a box of breath mints, dumps the whole thing into his coffee, and then downs the whole coffee cup. You got to sweeten it somehow. I guess. But yeah, that's some uh, that's some suspect behavior coming from old dad there. Yeah. He walks David to the bus stop, and on the way, he tells David there really was something over the hill and offers to show him, but David gets scared and runs on to the school bus. In his class, David's teacher, Mrs. McKelch, is handing out permission slips for a field trip as a frog tries really hard to escape from a glass jar on her desk. That frog is hopping like crazy, and he can't get out. The class is preparing to dissect frogs. Did you ever do that in school? Uh, no, they wouldn't let me in that class. <laughs> and uh, they said something about insurance. or something. I don't know what happened, but yeah, no. I took Latin <laughs> twice, though. So. Okay. You never got to dissect the frog, but you can tell us it's Latin name. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I heard about it though, like a bunch of people. I don't know, like that age, they started, they moved from frogs, they was doing baby pigs and stuff. Yeah, I never got to do the baby pigs. That that sounds gross as hell. It does. Well, Mrs. McKelch is showing parts of a frog on a chart, and one of the girls calls her over and says, I don't see it. Can you show me? And so she goes over there to show her. And about that time, one of the boys, who is a real jerk, throws a frog at Heather, who is sitting next to David, and smacks her right in the face. David picks up the frog, and as he does, he cuts his finger on the scalpel on his desk. He throws the frog back at the kid, just as Mrs. McKelch looks up to see him do it. And she's had enough of David Gardner's nonsense. She always refers to him by his full name, never calls him David. It's always David Gardner. Yeah, that's how you know you're in trouble. Yeah. It's also how you know a teacher hates you. It's when she only will refer to you by your full name. Yeah, it reminds me of a lot of my teachers. <laughs> well, Mrs. McKelch asks Heather to keep an eye on the class as she takes David to the school nurse, and Mrs. Keltner, Heather immediately turns into the stern teacher type. Going home after the school, David walks up to his front door only to find it standing open, which is unusual. He goes inside, and the door slams shut behind him all on its own. The house appears to be empty. David calls to his dad, but there's no answer, and the TV is on, but it's tuned to static. So David changes the channel to a sci-fi movie. It looks almost like one of the War of the Worlds remakes. What, the Um, H.G. Wells? Yeah. I don't know what it was. Behind David, a shadow is coming down the stairs... Turns out it's David's mom, and she startles him with a remote control robot. Her robot voice is the same voice she used in the Conehead sketches. Yeah, they had to like coerce the shit out of her to do that. I bet. Uh, oh, I know what that movie was. The clip of that movie was Life Force. Oh, okay. The space vampire movie that Toby Hoover made. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be real easy for him to get a hold of. Same director, same production company. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, yeah. I'd like a little tidbit thing in there. Well, David's worried about his dad. Ellen says he's probably, he probably got a ride to the Marine base, but David is sure that he didn't and something is very wrong. No reason to think something's wrong other than he saw that little, what, 
I guess could have been interpreted as a bug bite on the back of his neck. But David's a nervous little kid, apparently. Later, it's 7 p.m. and George still isn't home. And now Ellen is concerned that something's wrong and she calls the police. The police chief shows up along with an officer. The chief of police is played by the same actor who played David Gardner in the 1953 original version of Invaders from Mars. Yeah, his, that guy's face looks like he's just got through saying the word Willikers. <laughs> like that's his natural expression on the face. Like it just he just looks like that kid. And yeah. if you've seen the original of this, and I have plenty of times, yeah, he's that's like his catchphrase in that movie is Willikers. Oh God. Well, they agree to go over Copper Hill and look for George. Once they're over the hill, George and another man named Ed burst out of the bushes nearby. They just, boom, out of the bush. Hey, we're home now. (laughs) (laughs) And they're both speaking in very flat, monotone voices. Ed, it turns out, is Heather's dad. That's the girl who sits next to David in school. He works for the phone company, and they had a special meeting at the Marine base. Uh, The police return from the other side of the hill, and now they have slack expressions, and they're speaking in flat, monotone voices, just like George. George assures the police that everything's fine, so they leave. Then George grabs David by the arm and drags him into the house. At dinner, George tells Ellen that they're going to take a walk over the hill after she does the dishes. What do you mean when I do the dishes? Yeah, when you do the dishes. (laughs) (laughs) Just after midnight, Uh, We see a man walking into David's room. David is pretending to be asleep, and it turns out it is George, and he takes David's fishbowl filled with pennies and leaves. David runs to the window just in time to see George taking Ellen over the hill. He yells for his mom as they disappear over the hill, but apparently they're too far away to hear him. Next morning, Ellen's cooking bacon and rubbing at the back of her neck. She brings this huge plate of burnt bacon to the table. And she stands there shoving burned bacon into her mouth while she and George discuss whether or not David is feeling well. Uh She decides they should all go on a picnic over the hill. And then Ellen takes a package of ground beef out of the refrigerator and she pulls a piece of it off and forms it into a little ball, explaining that she'll make hamburgers for their picnic She pours a ton of salt onto this meat and then just eats it raw. That's how I like my burgers. (laughs) David acts like he's going to leave, but his mom grabs him and gives him a spooky hug as the school bus arrives. Later on the playground at school, David is sitting on the jungle gym and somebody walks up behind it and smacks it with a baseball bat, scaring the crap out of him. It's the kid who wants it's a a kid who wants to make sure David was just shitting him about all that spaceship crap, right? He tells David that all the guys think you're spaced. Well, yay, nice pun. (laughs) You're a little kid. Inside the school, David overhears the police chief telling Mrs. McKelch that they will proceed at midnight. There must be no mistakes. We'll be destroyed. She responds by telling him that George Gardner has been delegated. And David hides around the corner as the police chief walks past him. As he leaves, David goes to spy on Mrs. McCletch as she writes on the chalkboard that there'll be a field trip at 2 p.m. 
And then she disappears around a corner to an area behind the chalkboard. David sneaks through the empty classroom and peeks around the corner. It's kind of like a cloakroom slash storage room. There's a bunch of hooks on the wall for kids to hang their coats. I went to one school that had an area like that in the classroom, but I don't remember when it was. It must have been really early. Yeah, like it seems like elementary schools have that, but like once you get like, you know, to be like a messy teenager, just they don't care. It's like trying right. to get rid of but yeah, like I remember that shit back in like elementary school. They're like uh, Mickey Mouse painted on the walls and there's like coat hooks and shit, like little cubbies for your shoes and stuff. I don't know. Yeah. Well, as David watches, he creeps up behind Mrs. McKelch and he sees she has a bandage on the back of her neck. I don't know if I mentioned this before, but when they were talking about the frogs, she said that these were fresh specimens that she gathered the night before over Copper Hill. Well, David sneaks up behind her, and she spins around, and she's got a frog in her mouth. (laughs) And his legs are kicking and everything, and as David watches, she just turns her head up and gulps that frog down. Then she grabs a napkin and wipes frog goo off her face, you know, like a lady. And this is why I'm such a fan of Louise Fletcher. She is down for absolutely anything a role asks her to do. Yeah. Whether it's Nurse Ratchet or Kai Wynn or frog-eating teacher, doesn't matter to her. (laughs) She's going to do it. I found an interview with her in 1995. She said, frankly, how many parts are out there for people like me? I'm not going to be a person who complains about roles for women. There's a long line of people doing that already. I'm working. Even if I don't think something is so great, I still do it. I'm one of those actresses who has to work for a living. So, yeah, if she gets a role, she's going to do it all the way. And in this case, that means eating a frock. That's like some (laughs) of my favorite actors are like just bit part character actors. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Fred Willard. Oh, my God. Oh, man, (laughs) dude. I love like all those movies he did with Christopher Guest and shit. Yeah. Uh, Taylor Negron, he's a good guy. Uh, there's a bunch of them I could like point out, but I ain't got all day. They made a couple documentaries about that. They're really good. Oh, I bet. Movies. Yeah, it's called, oh, and starring that guy. Well, Heather pops up behind David, demanding to know what he's doing. David runs out of the class as Mrs. McKelts chases after him. David runs to the nurse's office, and Linda Magnuson, who is the school nurse, she intervenes, protecting David from Mrs. McKelch. As she leaves, Mrs. McKelch threatens Linda and says, You just you wait, sister, I'll get you. (laughs) (laughs) She calls her sister a lot. Yeah. Well, it's like late 70s, early 80s, but yeah, the way she does it is really like kind of unnerving. Yeah, it really is. In the nurse's office, Linda convinces David to trust her, but first he wants to see the back of her neck. When he sees there's no wound there, he decides he can trust her, and he tells her everything. But, of course, she doesn't believe him. This is a weird little kid telling fantasy stories. Yeah. Linda steps out of the nurse's office for just a second, but she runs right into Mrs. McKelch. And when she asks about the bandage on her neck, Mrs. McKelch says she has a boil. These two are going to come to blows. Uh, Mrs. McKelch wants David, who she refers to only as the boy, 
Linda doesn't really buy David's story, but she dislikes Mrs. McKelch enough to keep her away from David. Or maybe she's starting to believe him now. I don't really know. Kind of hard to tell. Back in her office, she gives David the key to her house and sneaks him out of windows so that he can wait for her at her house. Maybe she does believe him. Once David's gone, the silhouette of Heather appears outside the nurse's office door in kind of a shining, the shining sort of way. Just a girl with pigtails standing silhouetted on the glass of the door. Come play with us. <laughs> Heather also has a bandage on the back of her neck, and she wants to know where David is, but Linda just sends her away. David is running around the outside of the school as the doors open and kids just pour out into the parking lot. He's about to leave, but he sees his parents driving into the parking lot. He also sees Mrs. McKelch and Heather in the parking lot looking for him. So he climbs into the open side door of a van because somebody just parked their van there with the side door wide open. Man, they made so many after school specials about, wow, that's a bad idea. I know. And this one also turned out to be a bad idea because the inside of this van is filled with animal cages like, you know, a serial killer would have. (laughs) David sees Heather and Mrs. McKelch talking about him. And then Mrs. McKelch sets another small animal cage in the van. David's hiding in Mrs. McKelch's van. Next, we see David's parents confronting Linda. They're speaking normally again, and they're threatening to sue because David's missing. George wants to know how much David told Linda, and she lies and says it was only a small problem with one of his teachers. Inside Mrs. McKelch's van, David's surrounded by skeletons and animals that have been stuffed and mounted. There's a, a bird in there. There's a monkey in there. There's an entire human skeleton. This woman is super creepy. David stands up in the van. Mrs. McKelch doesn't see that, though. He stands up in the van behind her and sees that the bandage has come loose on the back of her neck, revealing this, like, pencil-sized hole in her neck. Mrs. McKelch stops the van and gets out, climbing over a rail fence and heading down a hill into the woods. So, of course, David has to follow her. That's a rule in movies like this. If the scary person is going away from you, you follow them. (laughs) He finds a cave entrance and he can see Mrs. McKelch went inside, so he follows her. Despite the spooky red lighting inside, he goes in. Uh, The interior of the tunnel of the cave looks almost like giant worm tunnels. It's like that corrugated metal pipe, you know? Yeah, kind of like in Sewer Gator. Yeah, just like in Sewer Gator's. Mrs. McKelch approaches an arched doorway with alien symbols up at the top of it and a membrane-looking door that opens for her with gross, squishy sounds. And David continues to follow her through an area that definitely borrows some elements from H.R. Giger's designs for aliens. These, like, ramps that look like they're made out of bones almost. He hides behind her around a corner and watches Mrs. McKelch as she goes up one of these ramps to a platform with two weird-looking Martian drones. They look like something out of Jim Henson workshop. They're great big round things on four legs. Look kind of like a Pac-Man frog. You ever seen one of those? Yeah. Uh, I like the design of it. Like, what they came with, like, the critique of, like, whenever they do, like, especially the the original movie of this is, like, 
aliens always just like some dude in a suit so it looked human shape you know and it's like right stupid helmet you know so with this one they wanted to make it look so inhuman you know right so it's it's actually uh like a strong person like walking on all fours with a little person on their back controlling the mouth with their feet. yeah and it's yeah, amazing so looking yeah you've got like um you've got an average size puppeteer facing backwards in the suit and he's got a dwarf puppeteer strapped to his back to work the mouth and eyes and it, and it really works great you know the back, the front legs of the drone are the back are the legs of the puppeteer and and the back legs you know you can see that's obviously his arms holding a like a stick but it, it really works well uh, also like this whole set that they're in the uh the spaceship yeah they filmed that in the uh the hangar or whatever that the spruce goose was in oh really yeah the what was the crazy rich guy what was his name howard hughes howard hughes he had that giant plane and right. he just like kind of sat there well th where they built this soundstage at that's where it sat and uh so you got like this big open area and they filled it with all these like weird alien shits and then nice. you got like these things like I don't know, look like demented Oopa Loopas, <laughs> like walking words, going around with these gross mouths, man. And uh, yeah, I don't know if you ever seen that movie, The Killer Spawn, but it's like that. That's what they look like, but with legs. Yeah, they look kind of like Pac-Man frogs. They're, they're a ball with a bunch of teeth. Yeah, yeah, they're 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 pretty awesome. I like them. Well, she stands there with these. And two drones, the supreme intelligence emerges from an opening in the wall that looks a lot like a golf ball washer, honestly. The supreme being or like the thing, the he thing that he comes out of. The supreme being looks like Krang from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Straight up like Krang from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> like, and it's weird. They Earlier in the movie, the, the cops, when the cops come in, they shine a flashlight and, like, and they're just like looking around. And uh, yeah. they shine it on the original thing that they used for the Supreme Being. And they, yeah, this movie totally kicks that Supreme Being's ass. It's just awesome how looking that is. It, yeah. They, they I mean, if, Krang, them. if they ever took Krang out of the tank he was in in that giant's belly, this is exactly what he'd look like. And like they did this in what, like 80, what was this, 84, 85? 86. Okay. Uh, all right. So they did this in 86 and they still can't make a decent, like, Ninja Turtles Krang monster, you know? <laughs> they're like, they're doing that shit with CGI and it still can't look this badass. It's sad. Well, the Supreme Intelligence floats down to land on a pedestal in front of Mrs. McKelch and it just sits there going, oh. And this glowing antenna comes out of the back of her neck as David watches, looking horrified, as you obviously would. The Supreme Intelligence speaks again, and Mrs. McKelch starts reciting the vowels for some reason. Yeah, I don't know if that's like aliens, like talk through tones or something. Yeah, or if the aliens learning how to speak, I don't know. I don't know, but it's, it's um, weird. And she recites the, this this weird, she, she recites the vowels, and then she says, you get me a pile, then you get me riddles, you bring them both to me, or I'll have your heart and liver out, David Gardner. 
And it makes absolutely no sense at all. It's just like some scary shit to say to a kid. I guess. Before you fuck with him. I don't know. Kind of a fee-fi-fo-fum thing. Yeah. I, I don't know. Well, the antenna disappears back into her neck and she turns to face the spot where David is as one of the Martian drones emerges from the tunnel behind David. This is the first close-up we get of him. And it's like half body, half giant mouth filled with way too many pointy teeth. It's awesome. Yeah, it's like a sea of teeth. It's kind of like what it they're doing definitely... in things now, you know? Like it's just a bunch of teeth and a, and a mouth, you know? You know, I never finished the second season of Stranger Things. Like the the first one and yeah. like the third one is kind of like, yeah, like this. Or like that movie I was talking about, The Deadly Spawn. It's like it, it looks like the Kiss or it looks like the Rolling Stones logo. Yeah. With the, the these guys' teeth. And that's that's all it is. Okay. It's just nightmares. <laughs> yeah, it's just a, a mouth with a sea of teeth in it and it's creepy as shit. David runs for the exit, chased by the drones, and he escapes the tunnel as Mrs. McKelch vows to get you, David Gardner. David runs through the forest until he exits near a house. I guess this is Linda's house? There's a police car in the driveway, and someone off-camera reaches out and grabs David and puts a hand over his mouth, scaring him until he turns around to see that it is, in fact, Linda. She's afraid the cops think she's kidnapped David, but David's trying to tell her about the slimy giant Mr. Potato Heads in the cave. And some awkward product placement. She doesn't know what he's talking about, so he's going to go show her. And this is when she decides to have a moment of internal struggle asking David, you're not just a crazy kid, are you? (laughs) (laughs) I used to get asked that all the time. <laughs> Not quite as much now. No, nah, I mean I still do. I just <laughs> I did also then. So yeah, it evens out. Yeah. Linda and David Linda drives David to the spot where the tunnel was, but it's gone now. And he claims that the aliens can move the tunnels. That's why it's not there anymore. Well, now David says they have to go to Copper Hill, and as the responsible adult. Miss Linda goes along with it. At the top of the hill, they look down into the empty sand pit. She really tries to convince David that they need to take him home, and and she'll be able to make up a story to smooth things over. And that's when they see a truck arriving at David's house with two men in orange jumpsuits, and they're asking David's dad, George, where some where something is. He directs him to go over the hill and down into the canyon. Well, the two men head down into the sand pit with what looked like metal detectors. David and Linda watch as they work their way across the canyon floor looking for something. They think they found a signal under the sand, and that's when a vortex appears in the sand. A whirlpool opens up and just sucks the guys down into whatever is below there. Closing up as if they were never there. David and Linda run for the car and start to leave when they see Mrs. McKelch driving the school bus as she takes the class to the sand pit. Mrs. McKelch does everything. Yeah. That was a really cool uh, part, too. Like where she goes and she's like trying to reverse because they just saw someone get eaten by sand. And right. so she's in reverse. She totally doesn't see that school bus and then like has to like hard reverse. 
out of it. And yeah. then like, yeah, the, she, she dead, the, the school, but the school lady dead eye stares them down and is yeah. like, I'm, I'm going to drop these kids off and I'm coming after you. Yes, she and is. Like, you know, I got to go and like, you know, feed these kids to the sand monster, but I'm coming back for you. And then Leah, oh man, it's like Jaws at that point. Yeah, definitely. Linda drives him to a gas station so that she can use the payphone to call the state police. How many of you remember payphones? (laughs) She leaves David in the car and in the background, Mrs. McKelch pulls up in the school bus, just like you said. Yeah, man, it's like Jaws. And so that shot's so cool because like you're all like, oh, she's like, Fumbling with the phone, trying to put a quarter in, it shuts back to you know David in the car, and then yeah, that school bus like just kind of pulls up silently. I don't know how she did that, but it's like yeah, you know what time it is, you know. <laughs> well, she comes up to David and says that he missed the field trip, and then she puts a hand over his mouth and drags him out of the car through the open passenger window. She tries to drag him onto the school bus, but he manages to get away and and yells for Linda and then runs down the street with Mrs. McKelch following him. Linda jumps in her car and chases him down. It almost looks like she's going to run Mrs. McKelch down, but then she swerves at the last minute. She pulls over and David gets in the car. They drive off with Mrs. McKelch shaking her fist and swearing to get him. That's a great shot. That whole like scene. Like just one long take down this road, like you know, yeah, that's great. After they get away, Linda explains she wasn't able to reach the state police, the line was busy, but there is somewhere they can hide while she calls the FBI. They sneak into the empty, dark school. David takes some time to run over to his locker and grab his jacket. In the nurse's office, Linda tries to call the FBI, but the phone lines are all dead. Outside, a police car pulls up at the school so david and linda leave to hide somewhere else as the police chief and officer kenny search for them david leads linda into the boiler room in the school basement as they're going down the stairs into the boiler room linda of course trips over a mop making a whole bunch of noise and letting the cops know where they are otherwise they would have got away with it David and Linda hide, and Linda starts having an emotional breakdown. David tells her to hush, and, and they hide on an old bed in the corner of the, lin- of the uh, boiler room. How come all these schools have old beds in them? I know, right? I, what, what was the budget like back then? I don't know, man. It's like, uh, <laughs> I mean, now we got like computers and stuff, but like no beds. Right, right. The janitors get to go home at the end of the day. They don't have to live in the school. That cuts down on the Freddy Kruegers, you know. So That's true. <laughs> but you don't have a place for a student to realize that the janitor was once a star baseball player. <laughs> because movie, yeah, you're right. Yeah. yeah. Well, the cops head down the stairs and they find David and Linda huddled in the corner. They say, it's okay, we're here, we're the police, we're here to help. And they immediately draw their guns and point them at David and Linda. That checks out. (laughs) They're they're L.A. cops. Yeah. (laughs) Just then, the ground starts shaking, and a giant disco ball drill head bursts up through the floor, knocking the cops off balance and allowing David and Linda to escape. This really slow-turning drill, and it's got really bright yellow lights shining out of it. I don't know why the drill head has to see. 
I think it's like they paid a lot of money for that uh, lighting equipment they got from that rock like show. So they're like, yeah, we're going full <laughs> force. What, what was sense. the budget? Yeah, it's like, what was the budget? How much did that cost? Uh, could we have in some more scenes, please? <laughs> I gotta write this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, four point nine million budget, and half of it was lights. <laughs> <laughs> well, David and Linda managed to make it back to her car and escape. David wants to go back to find his parents, but Linda says they're not going back without getting help first. David thinks they need to get General Mad Dog Wilson. And we see General Wilson in the command center smoking a cigar. He's smoking a cigar the entire time he's on camera. When he hears that George Gardner's son is at the gate, he has David and Linda brought directly to him. This is a high security area, so when a kid and a school nurse show up, it must be important, right? Yeah, this is where it all becomes like a fever dream. Like, as soon as the military gets involved, yeah, this is where they're going to at the end of the movie, they're going to pull out and it's going to be like this kid's dream, isn't it? Because like the they um, I mean, everything's kind of over the top, like, you know, the teacher ladies over the top that that frog scenes over the top. But this is where it's like they're going to pull the wool over my eyes and it's going to be a dream, isn't it? It definitely mm. seems like an unreliable narrator. Yeah, it's like the when they say it's like. So and so Gardner's grandson's here, you know, you know, pull him up right now, you know, and it's like, h, that's there's no way this little kid's like <laughs> that big of a deal, you know. Exactly. And this is, I mean, and he's got like the the cute school nurse, you know, who yeah. he might might not have a crush on, which is weird because we all know that actor's his mother. But <laughs> it's like weird. It's like you know, I'm dreaming. This is a dream. But yeah, it, it's like yeah. That kid's got to come up here right now, you know, and then the military, the, the Marines get all, you know, and then it's like, you know, they're laying down the plan and shit. Yeah. Getting intel and well, as they're driving through the base, they see a bunch of guys loading a whole bunch of spools of copper wire into the bed of a pickup truck in the general's office. General Wilson wants to know what's up. David needs to check the backs of their necks before he will talk to them. After he decides they're okay, but before he tells them anything, we cut to George and Ellen Gardner pulling up beside a steaming tanker truck filled with liquid oxygen and covered with NASA logos. <laughs> George hands two men a briefcase, then opens it to reveal a bomb inside. He sets the detonator and closes the briefcase, gives the bomb to the two men and tells them that they better hurry. You don't want to blow it <laughs> well the nasa guys get in the truck and drive off now, back in the general's office he's kind of reluctant to believe david's story although nasa does confirm a ufo sighting but nothing showed up on radar and the two men who checked out the area gave it a clean report those were the two guys who got sucked down into the sand uh, vortex. The general calls somebody into his office and asks her to escort David and Linda to the briefing room. Then he tells his aide, Rinaldi, to notify NASA that he's going to do a routine security check of their men. Because a 10-year-old kid just told him a story, so obviously we got to check it out. <laughs> Well, the two guys who disappeared under the sand are escorted into the general's office. When the general mentions that he has a few questions for him about Copper Hill, 
They immediately pull guns on him and then stand patiently while Ronaldo takes him down. It's kind of a bad fight scene. They pull out the guns, they point him at the general, and they just stand there and wait for the other guy to do all the work. Yeah. Once they're down, MPs pour into the room and arrest the NASA researchers. The general wants to know what this is all about. And as one of the men begins to speak, they both start convulsing and fall to the floor where they die. Rinaldi's checking for a pulse when he gets zapped. And then the glowing antenna things that were sticking out the back of Mrs. McKelch's neck, they come out of the back of these guys next too. And the general orders the entire base sealed. Next, the NASA tanker with the bomb is driving through the base. While the NASA scientists have been brought into the General's Command Center along with David and Linda, David mentions photos from the Viking mission to Mars that looked like pyramids and a monkey head. He says, those were fake, right? And the NASA science says, nope. Not only are they not fake, there's a whole bunch more that were more unbelievable than that. (laughs) They also confirmed that they are looking for life underground on Mars. And the general says that if life, if there is life underground on Mars, it might not want them to find it. We get another shot of the oxygen tanker. There are explosives wired all along the side of the tank now. The NASA scientist is looking at the antenna that came out of the neck of one of the dead men. They're planning to launch a mission to Mars in 12 minutes, but the general wants to stop the countdown temporarily while they figure out what's going on. Oh, yeah, let's just pull the plug on this. Yeah, just temporarily. Meanwhile, the tanker is approaching a checkpoint, and an MP tries to stop the tanker, but it just barrels right through and heads for the rocket on the launch pad. In the command center, they are watching a cheesy computer animation. They couldn't do a closed-circuit TV feed. They had to do a wireframe drawing of the tanker truck headed toward a cartoon picture of the rocket. When the truck heads toward the rocket, it hits the rocket and it explodes, destroying their rocket to Mars. A soldier informs the general that base security arrested two technicians who were trying to steal copper wire, but the space radar is back online. It doesn't indicate any aliens approaching Earth, but that's because they're already here. So the, so the general sent, they got space radar. Come on. <laughs> the general sends a platoon of Marines to the school and asks David to take him to the sand pit behind his house. We get our obligatory military rollout montage. Gotta have a military rollout montage. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And it feels like when they're driving off and it does like a close up of each one's faces, it feels like that one scene in Terminator 2 or something. Like before they take him to Skynet, it's like that. It's like awesome. Yep. At the school, Marines burst in and they head to the boiler room and they're looking down into a steaming pit. One of the men repels into the pit, then he calls for the rest to follow him. Back at the sand pit, David thinks they should try talking to the Martians. A Marine informs the general that the platoon at the school found a tunnel complex under the boiler room and they're following the tunnels straight toward the sand pit. David and Linda watch as the Marines prepare for combat. They've got barbed wire around this sand pit. They got machine guns. They got a tank driving right through David's picket fence. They got a budget. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if they can just drive through fences, man, they got all kinds of money. (laughs) 
<laughs> Rinaldi is walking along this line of Marines when he stumbles and falls into the sand pit. And the sand immediately starts rippling like, a, like the sandworms in Dune. Yeah. Headed straight towards him. A sand whirlpool starts spinning and sucks Rinaldi under the sand. The general acts like Rinaldi's his boyfriend or something. He's just, mm-hmm. Rinaldi, Rinaldi. <laughs> Leo, like they were best friends all growing up and shit. I guess. Meanwhile, Marines and Dr. Weinstein from SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, who happens to be carrying an old Star Trek prop scanner, are heading through the tunnels as a pair of Martian drones appear. Dr. Weinstein thinks everything will be just fine if he just walks up to these giant mouths filled with hundreds of razor-sharp teeth and treats them like puppies. (laughs) (laughs) Old reverse psychology, I see. Yeah, there we go. Hey, boy, it'll be all right. (laughs) One of the Marines goes, how does he know it's a boy? (laughs) (laughs) If we learned anything from these movies, it's that this guy is about to get eaten. Oh, yeah. Uh, the Marines stand back and watch as he tries to return the antenna that was taken from one of the dead research team members. He's convinced they understand him, and when he turns around to tell the Marines, one of the drones shoots a laser beam out of his headlight laser ball and vaporizes Dr. Weinstein. So the Marines immediately open fire, killing both drones. Then they prepare to search the tunnel. Back at the sand pit, David runs into the sand pit. Linda chases after him. He says he wants to find his mom and dad, and the sand starts rippling, and David and Linda, they get sucked into a sand vortex, too. The general decides that since they're in the tunnel, David and Linda are in the tunnel, this is the right time to blow up the tunnel. (laughs) (laughs) As Marines run out into the sand to set the charges, a sand vortex opens up under them, but they're tied off to winches and they get pulled to safety. The explosives get pulled under the sand and they explode. And that just reveals a, um, a tunnel in the middle of the sand pit. The Marines rappel down into the tunnel. David, meanwhile, wakes up in a chamber with a drone in it. Linda is unconscious nearby, and Rinaldi is laying face down on a table with a huge needle pointed at him. The camera then pans across the room to reveal Mrs. McKelch watching from a window up near the top of the room. The big needle stabs Rinaldi in the back of the neck, implanting an antenna. David attempts to wake Linda up, but she's, she's out cold, and the drone grabs David just as Rinaldi starts to wake up. The general and his platoon are walking through tunnels, and the NASA scientist is sampling the fumes in the tunnel. Turns out it's cupric oxide. The Martians are smelting copper in these tunnels. Weird. They could, well, I mean, at least they're doing it honestly and not ripping people's water pipes out or AC duct or anything like I that. I don't know, man. First thing Alien Dad did was take that kid's pennies away. That's true. He stole a whole pot of pen. So, yeah, I want to see receipts for these aliens, uh, copper. <laughs> I'm, I'm calling, yeah, I'm calling somebody. Well, this drone takes David to the Supreme Intelligence. David asks where Linda is. Mrs. McKelch enters and tells David that Linda is very busy. 
David begs the supreme being to not hurt Linda and return his parents. He tries to reason with the supreme intelligence in precisely the way a small child would do. You can't do this. It's wrong. Yeah. That's another like uh, sign point to this is a dream. Like this isn't really happening. They, they've taken me out of the movie, but yeah. Yeah. It seems that way. Yeah. Eventually he just asked for his mom, dad, Linda and Heather to be returned. And you can keep Mrs. McKelch. <laughs> Bargaining chip. Well, that seems to make the Supreme intelligence pretty angry. And he slaps David with a big, long tentacle. Mrs. McKelch tells David, it's his turn now. The Supreme Intelligence starts saying, poor little guy. You know, just like David's dad would say to him. David's dad called him little guy all the time. Well, that makes David mad. He calls the Supreme Intelligence a dick brain and punches him in the face. (laughs) Mrs. McKelch grabs for David as he tries to run away, and he smacks her in the head with a bag of pennies he had in his jacket pocket. He dumps his pennies all over the floor, but he knocks her a good one. As he does, as he runs away, one of the drones bumps into Mrs. McKelch, who was bent over to grab David, and knocks her right into the mouth of the other drone, which, of course, eats her. (laughs) That scene is awesome, though, with the legs kicking. Yeah. And then all of a sudden disappearing, and then he belches like a big puff of smoke. (laughs) <laughs> like she yeah, takes it bag, gave, yeah gave her indigestion yeah it's like that's funny as hell that's some I like mean, type shit they even laugh yeah, like the other one laughs at it it does and there's there's one cut to it where the um the drone is kind of shaking its head up and down and it's obviously fabric legs flopping around and then it cuts away and it cuts back and it's obviously human legs kicking inside that yeah. mouth. They did it really well. It's great. Yeah, that's a classic scene from this movie. Well, David runs to the window overlooking the chamber where Linda is. The drones have placed her on the table under the giant needle machine. He's calling to her, but she's out cold. So he runs out of the room. Meanwhile, in the tunnels, the general encounters Rinaldi. Rinaldi's there to stop him, though. He has a pistol pointed at the general. He's obviously struggling against Martian control, and he manages to get control of himself long enough to tell the general to shoot him. That's when he fires a shot at the general, and the Marines gun him down. Next, we see David in a tunnel looking down on a room that has two drones in it. One of them has the big laser beam headlight beach ball on the side of his head. The other drone pulls out what looks like a copper ruler and sticks it into the laser blaster beach ball, powering it on. As the Marines enter the area, David shouts to warn them, and they back out just as the drone fires, but the drone has stormtrooper aim, so he just shoots the wall instead of the Marines. (laughs) The Marines manage to catch the drones in a crossfire, killing both of them. After the drones are down, David tells the general about Linda and leads them through the Martian ship. The Marines open fire on the drones and the Supreme Intelligence. The drones and the Supreme Intelligence, however, are fighting back with lightning. And while this is happening, the needle device is close to sticking an antenna in Linda's neck. 
The Supreme Intelligence gets shot and decides it's had enough of this crap and disappears through its portal into <laughs> its little hidey hole. The Marines manage to kill the drones, and once they do, all the lightning stops. A guy with a bazooka blows open the window leading into the needle chamber. He's got a big bazooka, too. Yeah. Uh, that guy is awesome. That's uh, Commander Dale Dye, and he was like... Uh... He was in Vietnam and stuff, but like he came back and became like a military advisor. He's been in a bunch of stuff, like uh, any kind of army movie in the last 20, 30 years. He's had a part in. He's done uh, for video games, military advisor on video games and shit. Uh, I, I love see that. Guy. Yeah, they put him in every. Whenever he's in like a advisor on something, you know, they always give him like a little guest role and whatever. And nice. Yeah, that was his little pop in this movie. It was getting to shoot the bazooka well he blows open the window and they managed to rev- the marines tra- managed to revive linda and get her up off the table the ground starts rumbling and david exclaims that the spaceship is preparing to leave the marines set explosives in that needle chamber and set a five minute timer to allow everybody to get back out of the tunnel when they leave the supreme intelligence comes back out of his little hidey hole he was just in there long enough long enough for them to leave everybody runs out through the tunnels but here comes the disco ball drill head right toward david and linda they fall down on the ground and allow the drill to just pass over top of them harmlessly and then everybody heads out through the tunnels when they get to the tunnel entrance though they see that the martians have sealed the entrance and they can't get out but david finds the laser ball beat um headlight thing lying on the ground He gives it to Captain Curtis, and he and General Wilson think it'll work if they can figure out how to use it. That's when David tells him, oh, you need copper. That's, uh, I saw him do that. That's how you fuel it. (laughs) Well, they don't have any copper unless maybe somebody's got a penny. Does anybody have a penny? But apparently there's a policy that Marines aren't allowed to carry loose change into combat. That's what one of them says anyway. That's okay, though, because way back at the beginning of the movie, David's dad gave him a mint condition 1958 penny, and he's got it in the pocket of his jacket. He drops the penny into the very convenient coin slot on the laser ball, and they blast open the tunnel entrance. Everybody runs out of the tunnel except for David, who's just sitting there on the ground. I guess the laser blast knocked him down. And he's a little slow getting up. Knocked air out of him, maybe. Yeah. I, I guess I could buy that. Well, he hears his parents calling with him, calling him to go with them. George warns him that the Martians will leave without him, and David explains that he just can't go with them and runs for the exit. David manages to get out of the tunnel and run out of the sand pit. His parents chasing after him. Everybody gets over the hill and back to the house. David manages to get over the hill, but his parents catch him, and he wrestles on the ground with them as they watch the spaceship rise into the sky in the background. Once it gets completely into the air, the antennas in the necks of his parents short-circuit, causing sparks to shoot out the back of their necks. That was a cool effect. I like that. Oh, yeah. Meanwhile, the detonator on the spaceship that we've been watching through this whole chase bit Finally counts down to zero and explodes in the sky. 
David wakes up in his bed, thunder and lightning raging outside. This was all a dream, just like you said. Damn it. Every time. Yeah, that's why I don't even go to the movies no more. They try this bullshit. And the teacher, and she was... I give up. <laughs> give up, my David's parents come in to check on him, and he checks the back of their necks, and there's no marks there. George walks over and closes the window as David tells them the whole story of his dream. His dad explains, you know, your dream was influenced by all the things that happened to you that day, like your penny collection and the general coming to speak to the school and the meteor shower they watched. And remember, you saw Mars when we were out there watching that. And his mom uses her conehead's voice again to assure him that there is nothing to be afraid of, David Gardner. But I was so scared. There is nothing to be afraid of, David Gardner. Tomorrow we will take a picnic up at the hill. <laughs> well, his parents tuck him in and leave, and David tries to go back to sleep. But the lightning is back. David goes to the window and opens it and watches as the giant disco ball potato comes down out of the sky and lands behind Copper Hill. Dun, dun, dun. He runs to his parents' bedroom and screams, No! And we can't see what David sees, but we do hear the Martian drones in the room and roll credit. That movie. It's like Inception. It is. He dreamed um, everything that's, that is now happening. That's like, I know why they do that and stuff, but at the same time, it's just cheap. I know why they did in this movie, too. Uh, it, there's a, a Dr. Seuss movie. It's like live action. Yeah, something about the Thousand Fingers of J.T. Tullinger or something like that. And it okay. follows the same thing. It's like a kid, and he's on this magical journey. And the whole time, you're like, wait. Are we in the real world or are we in some make-believe world? Yeah. And they, they do it real well in that movie. I mean, that movie's kind of like this movie. It's, it's kind of hard to get through, you know, because it's so kid-friendly or whatever. But right. uh, it's the same thing. It's like this logic wouldn't work in the real – this logic wouldn't work in a movie world, you know, where the adults are the main focus. But no, but it does kid, work really well for kids where what's really scary for a kid is – all these bad things are happening, but then it's okay, but maybe it's not okay. Yeah, and like, I think that for a young kid getting into horror, this movie works and shit. Uh, yeah. It scared the hell out of me. Like, the original was like, a, what is it, like a comment on like communism invading the United States and shit, like the right. original. And this one, like, kind of you can get gleam the same thing, but to me, it it more like just shows how scared adults are to a kid, like how scary they can be and shit like this. Yeah. Yeah. The original in 1953, it was around the time of the Korean war. And so the red menace could be Martians or it could be the Chinese communists. You know? Yeah. So, so yeah, but, but this one, this is just a, a scare the kids story basically. Yeah. It works, you know. It scared the hell out of me. Uh, and like, yeah. I'm into reading weird sci-fi novels. So, Toby Hooper, man, that guy. Even like, you give him something like this, he's gonna roll with it, you know. Right. Yeah. Toby Hooper was great. The chemistry between Hunter Carson and Karen 
Karen Black, is that her name? Yeah, Karen Black. That was really good. And Louise Fletcher is a fantastic villain. A real ball this breaker. Movie just, it works for me all the way around. I like it. Plus, oh, it's yeah. cheesy. It's funny. Yeah, it's super cheesy. All right, man. I think that's a podcast. Hell yeah. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. We had a lot of fun making it. Be sure to subscribe and leave a rating wherever you hear us. You can follow CDF Pod on Facebook and Instagram or at CDF underscore pod on Twitter. You can also visit our website at CDFPod.com. And don't forget you can help us make donations to film schools all across the country by going to Patreon.com slash CDFPod. Join us next time as we explore another movie so awesome it probably shouldn't have been made. Thank you.